Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors for this episode. Chargebee is a leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Bendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt, Estonia has many advantages for early-state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Tavi Kotka, co-founder and CEO of Coos. Coos is a technology-based legal solution for motivating and rewarding your community. It is disrupting the equity model of ownership in companies and enables communities to become co-owners of companies that they love. Tavi is a serial entrepreneur, having started his first software company when he was just 20 years old. The company Nortel went on to become one of the biggest software companies in Estonia, well before Skype put Estonia on the map. In addition to being an entrepreneur, he was also the first CIO for the government of Estonia, where he co-founded the country's national e-residency program, which today is valued at close to $3 billion. He's also a prolific angel investor, having made early investments to Wise, Bolt, Verif, and several others. In my conversation with Tavi today, I'm going to dive into who Tavi is, what motivates him to constantly reinvent himself, his views on angel investing, hiring, and of course, about coups. So let's get started. Welcome, Tavi. Hello. Nice to be here. So Tavi, I'm going to take you all the way back to when you were 20 years old and you started your first company a software development firm that eventually went on to become the number one company in Estonia. What motivated you to start a company at that young age? Was that common at the time to start companies in Estonia? Yes and no. Definitely it was year 2000, which means that Estonia was free again from Soviet Union occupation less than 10 years. So everybody wanted to earn their first millions. I was more like a follower follower there, which means that there was already a core team who wanted to establish a company, but they had a missing element. The missing element was that they wanted to do a software engineering company, but they none of them were software engineer. They needed <laughs> my type of guys who actually were able to code and create software. So you fell into it. Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, true. Yeah. One of those founders was my classmate, even a deskmate in some lessons. We had a very a close relationship and understanding what they want to achieve. And they asked, am I willing to join? And I said, yes. I know when we chatted, you said that you were there for 12 years before Agile was a thing. You guys had invented the Agile form of software development instead of using the waterfall model. If you look back to those 12 years, what are some of the things that you have carried on to other things that you did later on in life? The first point, I was looking also for a like, chance to test out a new way of doing coding. And back then, you were absolutely right, was waterfall was the key methodology. 
And it was very complicated, say, to program using in the same chain. You made a change, I made a change, how to put it together, how to organize all the code reviews, etc. It was very painful. We developed tools for those kind of things before Atlassian. And, but it was Estonia, so we were more fancied about the new code we programmed for the banks and telcos and not so much about the processes. And obviously, none of us were able to develop a product back then and go to the global world. Yeah, but Agile, back then, we didn't call it that. We just call it prototyping. So the way we worked, uh, we looked at how customers want to work and we like made our processes or our product development according to the customer needs. And customers wanted to see the picture and see the end game. And I think that's the most important thing to what I have took along with that journey that to always hear the customer, what they want to achieve, and then adjust your world according to that. Yeah, absolutely. You stepped down as a CEO after about 12 years, and then you started doing a lot of angel investments, some fabulous investments, including in Wise that have now gone on to become unicorns. I assume you continue to do angel investments? Yeah, I have more than 50 companies in my portfolio. Wow, amazing. So what do you look for in companies that you invest? How do you decide which companies to invest in as an angel and which ones to not invest in? I don't want to be a smart ass here. I think it's more related with the fact that if you have experience in the startup world, you think you are a genius and obviously like you can invest and sense like any other startup, like are they willing they will they be a good one or not? One is the answer is that still most of your investments will just vanish, but you need only one, a big one to make a difference. So from that perspective, if you have been successful with one, you can continue to lose money with others because the one brought it back 2,000 times or 2,000 exits, for example. I don't want to give any specific advice here. I'm just thinking and looking at my friends and other startupers. I think we are too, how to say, we we believe too much our own experience. Mm. If we look at, for example, successful entrepreneurs who have done successful exits, exits in, let's say, especially in unicorn world, Usually their second startup is a total failure. Hmm. So I don't know too many examples where one founder, they did one, one billion exit and then right after that, another one. There are a couple of examples in the world, but not too many. It's still luck, I think, is still enormous and very important element in the startup world. And friends, the friends with whom you're actually investing together. Tavi, I think you're being too humble. If you've done 50 investments... There must be something that motivates you to invest in one company or the other. Forget about whether they became successful or not for one second. And just think about what's your decision-making process for deciding to invest in a company? For me, it's all about the idea and the team. If I like the idea and if I like the team, then I usually invest. And like I said, you can buy those small tickets, 20K, yeah. 50K, very rarely, 100K. It's like buying lottery tickets and the winning chance is much bigger than in, in Las Vegas. So for me, it's pure math and understanding if the team can take it to, to a certain level or not. 
so that's exactly what I want to drill into a bit more. When you say, if you like the idea, do you have to know the space before you'll invest or do you go and research? Like, how do you determine whether you like the idea or not? Is it like you are able to relate to it and that's why you can determine whether you like it or not? There are some areas of expertise where I feel comfortable and I usually trust myself. And there are, like Berif, for example, was this kind of investment. My friend with whom I usually invest together, he didn't like it. And I was so sure about identities and that strong identity becomes more and more important in the world. So I was basically all in, take, mm. just take my money. I know this will become a big thing. And uh, But in other areas, I usually trust lead investors or my friends. Estonia has a very strong angel investment community and we share information among each other where we, sh- where we see a good opportunity. We usually drag along our friends that let's invest together and uh, you can always ask for advice. It's good to be Estonian in that world. <laughs> and what about the team? How do you determine whether a team is going to have the sustaining power to go through the ups and downs of the startup world? I usually invest in our region, not only in Estonia, but in Nordics. Hmm. And here you definitely can find a second opinion about the team of founders. It's very connected, very close and small community. And then it's very easy to collect the background information. I have some random investments in Bangladesh and also Silicon Valley, but it was more like a formal thing that I just followed some others. But here, yes, it's very easy to get a very solid, like experienced opinion from some kind of some person who actually worked together with them. I see. Okay. All right. Let's move from after your first startup, Nortel, you then decided to become the CIO of Estonia. And we're pivotal in starting the e-residency program. Can you tell the audience very quickly, first of all, what the e-residency program is? No, it's a simple thing, uh, even though it's a complicated world. But the lawyers didn't allow us to say it with the right name. It's basically digital citizenship that opens you to access all the services in private and public sector in Estonia, except voting. And it's not a travel document, which means that, yes, you can establish a company in Estonia, run it from distance. You can open up a bank account from distance, but physically you still need a Schengen visa to come to Estonia. Like It's not a travel document, but it opens up as like a country for business. You are still in the European Union, all the benefits. Yeah. So UK is not so isolated, but uh, we have very like many e-residents from Ukraine, from Turkey, especially countries like who want to get access, better access to the EU market. And that was the goal in the beginning that let's give this opportunity for the people who are not living here in this union. But it was a great surprise that even today there are more people from EU using e-residency, like basically people inside the EU using e-residency than people outside of EU. And the reason is very simple as running a company in Estonia is hassle-free. There's very low bureaucracy, if any. And uh, that's why like, you can still be a German, have a Estonian company, German bank account. If you are, let's say, solo entrepreneur, you teach a nomad, you live here and there, definitely Estonian product is the best one for you on oh, the market. Interesting. Yeah. And it's not tax heaven, so let's not even yeah. start that game. 
So what is the hassle-free friction that it removes for entrepreneurs? Is it the bank accounts, visas? What is it that it removes? It's more or less what is related with reporting and what kind of services they can access without physically being here. So that kind of convenience, how the taxes are treated, Estonia doesn't have a corporate income tax. As long as you keep your money inside your company and reinvest it, it's not taxed. So it's the combination of things. And again, like how the government supervise all this, what you need to declare, what you don't have to declare. Basically, you don't have to do, you pay, I don't know, 75 up to 100 euros per month to a service company and everything is taken care of. Um, there are many solutions like this. I see. And you did this for about three years. You were the, in the government and four years. Yeah, exactly. Four years. Like I promised him two, but I did four because it became interesting. If you are 33, you, I just sold my shares in the previous company, my first millions, which means that if you're 33 and healthy, you don't work for the government in Estonia. You do something else. But I mean, I got this non-competition thing. I couldn't compete in private sector and they played the right keys and that's why I joined the CIO because we did a lot like it was a fantastic four years from the engineering perspective it wasn't so fantastic from personal perspective but as an engineer all my needs were satisfied yeah you were able to take a lot of ideas and actually execute on it at a country level which must have been really satisfying yeah um, usually, usually a software engineer never gets this kind of chance you get the chance let's say can get build a population registry or I don't know hospital system, but let's say change the whole way how the tax controls work in a country or the emergency example or data embassies. All this is totally new level that you never experience in private yeah. sector. Yeah, but it's not like one man job. I definitely had a team, and yeah. and the team achieved a lot. So yeah. I'm still grateful to Ait and others like who helped me there. Yeah, no, absolutely. It wasn't just you, but still, I think that impact must be definitely satisfying. You did say that it wasn't great for your personal side. Tell me a little bit about what happened. No, it was actually before I left. When you work for the government and if you do radical reforms, all those radical reforms, they take time, usually a decade. And in the beginning, if success doesn't come next day, Obviously, you will hit a huge amount of criticism and the negativity from the journalists, etc. That's happened with me. You think that you are doing great stuff and you know that you are doing great stuff because the numbers show that. And you can't understand why they're still wanting more. How much can one team deliver? Right? And it wasn't only me who was in a, under attack. I was also my team members and it generated a huge amount of stress. So I ended up in hospital for three, four months with a heart inflammation diagnosis. And then you understand that you don't need that family. Back then, it was three children. Currently, I have four children with the same wife. It's <laughs> important to say like nowadays. And yeah, you understand that there are other values in life. Yeah. Look, the stress is something that I hear as a recurring theme from everyone who has ever been an entrepreneur. How do you make sure that your stress levels don't elevate to that level? First of all, I have to be honest and say, I only had that stress problem in government. I have never <laughs> okay. had it in private sector. So I have been in private sector 25 years and in government only four years. And now during this 21 year, I haven't had any problem with 
with stress. Like, so it's still a question how you organize your life. Some smart people have said that you can only have three things from the list of family, business, hobby, self-development and training. So for me at the moment, it's definitely only family and work. I don't stress that much that I can't work out uh, a lot. I'm still in shape, but I, have, yeah. I don't have a, that basketball player level I had in high school. <laughs> what are the five again? Tell me again. Family, work. Self-development, friends, hobbies. And the sixth one, actually, the sixth one is the workout, the training. Workout, workout and yeah. training. And you only can pick free. Like yeah. others will suffer. It's true. It's true. But I like the way that you framed it because... At least you can then be aware that, look, I can only pick three and I know that these things are going to slide because I'm focusing on this. I think it's not having that awareness and thinking you can do more than three that probably ends up causing a lot of stress. Okay. All right. Let's talk about coups. Tell me, how do you get the idea to do coups and what problem does coups solve? Uh, I think if I explain the problem, then it's already understandable. The problem is that in current world, the equity is only shared between the founders, investors, and employees. And for employees, it's usually stock options. Investors, they buy their shares. And founders, they found the company. That's why they have the shares. But whenever you build up your company, you start from scratch, you always need help. You need first customers, early adopters. You need any kind of contributors, intros. Your mother helps you a lot, most probably likes. <laughs> so it's always a question, are they worth something else than just saying thank you? We all need to gather social capital and use it when it's needed. But let's say if everybody would come to me and ask, let's say, make introduce to this great founder because you invested into his company and you know him, I wouldn't do that because like I will lose my social capital. And if I do that, and if it actually helps you, can I get something extra back than just the word thank you? So what we like to say is better a small token than a, big, a huge thanks. So that's why we, we thought that there has to be an opportunity that if I really want to motivate masses, hundreds of people, and give them back, make them co-owners of my company. Let's say I'm a challenger brand and I need to motivate my supply. So to be with me, can I make them co-owners of my company? And the official answer is no. The bureaucracy is huge. It's so huge and so heavy and so costly that nobody is even willing to do that. We have solved that for Europe and for UK. Not yet in US, but at least this part of the world. You can make anybody, a shareholder gives you enough flexibility to make them feel that they are part of the journey and they truly are. And if you're lucky, if you will have a successful exit, they will have their share. And at the same time, you don't have to invite them to the physical shareholders meetings. You can obviously invite them and it's always fun if you invite them. But you are, it's, it doesn't add any significant bureaucracy into your cap table. So, so where is it? Where does this show up? Is it part of the option pool that you usually reserve for employees and advisors? Is it coming out of that? Is it a separate thing? Does it show up in the cap table? Yeah, when you start, you establish your business goals you want to achieve together with your community or your team or your helpers. Then you set up like a virtual pool, how many shares you will have there and how much they are worth. 
and the worth is defined through the value of the company or the future value of the company. It doesn't, it doesn't matter in the beginning, to be honest. And uh, yeah, it's not in the cap table. You can and allocate it, make it this way that say that 10,000 virtual shares equals 1% of the company and it's dilutable, etc. But officially they are not in a cap table. They are like more like liability, like a loan, which means that you only buy back those shares and then get money to your advisors if there is a successful endgame. If there is some kind of like dividend payment or exit, or IPO, whatever, what they have been agreed, only then you pay, which means that the whole motivation becomes so much more simpler. If there is success that we jointly build, we all will be lucky. If not, nothing to do. It was a great chance, but if you tried, but you don't have to pay out money today. Let's say if Mm. you generate a referral scheme, for example, that's money going out today. So if you generate discount system for your customers, money going out today. In this way, it's better. Like you can keep money in the company, you can build. And if there is success, yes, you have to pay more. But you are then also willing to pay more because you can set the bar. Let's say there is no buyback unless the company value is more than 30 million euros or pounds, Mm. for example. So you can be very flexible with this. So this shows up in your liabilities, in your balance sheet. Yeah, but it's with the, with the asterisk, which means that that liability is only liability if there is success. It's, it doesn't influence your ability to take a loan, for example, because it, okay. you don't have to pay it. And what kind of companies are using this today? We are in, still in seed phase, which means that lots of discovery to do, but we have some very clear areas where we see the benefits. For example, anything like, like challenge and brand, you are a challenge and brand in, I don't know, in commodity market or in telecom, whenever, and you need a differentiator, build a company together with your customer base mm. or marketplaces, build your company together with your supply or NGOs that you want to reach the sky and have a change in society, reduce food waste or whatever. And you need a practical scheme, how to motivate the people to do not only the voluntary work, but some more sophisticated stuff and then share the benefits if the reform or like the change how truly happens. So there are like many use cases where we completely make sense. Mm-hmm. B2B feedback, for example, how to motivate your customers and to give you feedback and even buy more. There are many, several use cases. I'm thinking like in the case of a community, if I'm recommending a company I'm doing it because I'm independent and I really like their products versus if I'm getting some sort of compensation, does that compromise my independence? And is that something that has come up as an objection? Obviously, it depends on use case. You always have to follow the being honest principles. Nobody wants to be, nobody wants to bribe anybody or be corruptive. Uh, I think that's what is important here. If let's say your company needs help and you issue your own virtual shares to your community, they can't exchange them into instant money. They can do it like when you actually have a successful exit and it might take seven years or 10 years. Yes, like you can do company buybacks, let's say every year to a certain extent. But that's the thing, like I think currently where the salespeople get those gift cards or bring your friend, get 50, that's pure bribing. And there is like, that's basically motivating my one-time activity. Exactly. Very transactional. Yeah. 
But here, and obviously not everybody cares about this, totally understandable, but there is, you have a chance to build together with your community. They are mm -hmm. part of your journey. And like best customers we have had since now, they are giving away up to 30% of the company. Obviously it's an earnout, which means that the community needs to earn it out during the years, but it's significant. It's huge. Yeah. I can see this working in the next generation of social networks where people all own a piece of it rather than it being controlled by one big brother type of company. Yeah, there has been already examples of those. That was a hype wave a year ago called DAOs or DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous yes. Organizations. They didn't work because the core principles were wrong. I come from socialism, so I know that socialism doesn't work. But I also think that the pure capitalism is not right. If I look how Figma developed the product and I didn't gave anything back from their exit to the people who actually had to develop the product or like how Spotify treats the musicians. I don't see that it's fair. So I, I agree that, and I see there's an opportunity for new kind of businesses where let's say core team founders, investors still own, let's say 50, maybe 60% of the company, but the 40% goes to the supply or demand. It mm. depends like what is more needed in your business. Mm. And how do investors view this? Do they see this as a good thing? Are they unsettled by it? Obviously, it's a new thing, which means that you need to explain this to your investors. But usually they are very okay with this because all those mathematical models, the way how you give out those virtual shares, they are tied with revenue or whatever you're chasing, what is your key metrics. But 95% of the uh, models we have made to the market, they're all about if the company grows X, like we will give away Y. And it's never, okay, nothing happened. We didn't earn any extra revenue. Or there wasn't any company growth, but we have to give away like equity, which actually happens in the case of options because mm. with options, you pre-agree the results, even if they are not mm. properly delivered. Or this way, virtual shares are actually better instrument than options. Mm. Yeah. So I think there's some education to be done in the Definitely. marketplace about this. Okay. It's a more painful education. It's not even so much needed in virtual share area, but the more how to how to make community work for you. So people talk about it a lot, but in real life, there's no too many examples who, where the community management has been done in a very great way. Yeah. And there also we can help. We can lend you a coaches and, and help you set up the first steps, etc. So that's part of the service. So what is your vision for Coos? What do you want to accomplish no, with Coos? Okay, I have to correct now. It's actually fifth. It's not third. Oh, fifth. Okay. <laughs> because I started as a programmer before Nortel. Okay. Yeah. I know I shouldn't say that, but as it's not my first startup, not my first millions, becoming a unicorn is not the goal per se. For me, I truly want to see the change that we don't take things for granted. So I truly want to see that we start to remember the people who helped us during our journeys or whenever we opened up a new market or established, started a new product. So let's remember those early adopters' efforts, or the, um, the ones who talked about, the, uh, about, about this or whoever helped us. And when the world starts to change towards that direction, I'm happy. 
And also I would like to see is the whole wealth management thing that for 95% of the people in the world, the only income is salary. Mm. So I truly would like to see that people like will check their Coos wallet in the same way like they, let's say, richer one, check their interactive brokers wallet. Even though you don't change and buy your stocks every day, like you still peek inside and see how your portfolio is doing. Like the same way I would like to see more and more people checking their portfolio and then see like how their virtual shares are doing. So that's my dream. Like at least 1 billion shared back to the communities. That would be a nice goal. Nice. Definitely that patriotism that I think Estonian people have seems to shine through in the way you think, whether it was CIO and the government, whether it's this new coups that you've done, that seems to be a common thread that you want to somehow impact the community around you in any way. Yeah, definitely. Estonia is a small nation. Uh, we only can survive if we stick together and build together. So definitely Estonian roots uh, have helped me here. <laughs> Look, for the last part of our conversation, I want you to again think, what if you could talk to your younger self when you were building your first company? What are some of the things you would tell your younger self, having gone through the journey that you have over the number of years? <laughs> yeah, obviously, if you could give a list of things that, oh, this works, this doesn't work. When you hire somebody, do this, don't do that. Don't trust this type of people. Like, demand evidence with that type of people. It would be great to have those. Uh, One is around people and what to trust, what not to trust, yeah. when to ask for evidence, when not to ask for evidence. Okay. But uh, for me, I think the most I value now and I didn't value so much before was more this kind of financial intelligence, like how to do finances and how to take care of that and how to think about your, your service and product and uh, who is the good customer, who is the bad customer. That, that part definitely was my weak link back then because I was mostly focusing on engineering and delivering good solutions for the customers. So that kind of like financial thinking, definitely I lacked. What do you mean? Be... You mean not I all mean... revenue is created equal? No, if you are an engineer, you're fascinated about the functions and then the elements of the product you deliver to the customer and you barely think that, okay, am I like, is the project still profitable or not? And how much I actually can spend or vice versa, seeing how beneficial this would be for the customer. Maybe we should have revenue sharing or other models than just pure, uh, I build you this, you pay me that type of relationship. Having that knowledge definitely would have sped up the development of my first startups and companies. Okay. So financial management, financial literacy, anything yeah. else? No, because from the family perspective, from the wife perspective, absolutely fantastic choices, nothing to complain. That, that part, I'm, I have an extraordinary wife, just do what you did. So you, she started to like you. And so, <laughs> <laughs> please don't mess that up. <laughs> that's a huge part. That's a very good part. We have four lovely children and that's an amazing family. I know for the last part of our conversation, what do you think about ChatGPT and 
what impact do you think it's going to have? Yeah, yeah, it's not only chat GPT, the whole predictive analytics and AI models. I'm a huge fan. I always have been also always slightly afraid what might happen if it's not used in the right way. Uh, because the, I think the influence of those tools are the same or comparable what the internet had with us. So again, the same thing early years with internet, like people couldn't understand what can be the benefits there. Like, so there is slow and and what can, how can you use it? And I think the way how we use the AI tools at the moment is in the same kind of kinder shoes, but yeah, my worry is that we start to generate more and more virtual worlds, which means that we will spend more and more time in devices and not in real world. But what is real and what is not, that's also questionable. If you read a book, you also imagine a life or like activity that happens in that book. Is it a virtual world or is it real world? Obviously, it's a virtual world. So the way how we imagine stuff and live this other life, a virtual life, we can't blame it has happened since like last 2000 years. So let's not be afraid. Let's start to use that technology and definitely it opens up to the new emotions and experiences for us. Okay. So Tavi, I know that one of your other passion projects is getting more women to do something in engineering and STEM and sciences. And you even started a girl's after school program called HK Unicorn Squad. Tell me a little bit about what you're trying to do with this initiative for Estonia. It's a very clear goal. Through my years working with different software engineering companies, there is a clear pattern. There's no women in software engineering. Yes, you can see them in system analyst positions or in quality control positions. But if you count programmers and especially senior programmers or even architects, there are no women. Or if there are some women, they're usually daughters of the, like some great engineers before them. So at the same time, those positions are very highly paid and you can have a very great balance between work and the hobbies and family. And I was worried looking at my own daughter, my firstborn, that can she basically do the same choices I did 20, 30 years ago. And you very quickly understand that even if she would like to do that choice, I don't want to force her, but if she wants to do that choice, it's complicated because the way how boys are treated during the childhood and at, at school give them huge competitive advantage compared with girls. Let's say in the age of eight, now we have scientifically measured and the boys are at least one and a half years more advanced in technology than girls. The robot, robots, drones, everything. And that gap widers like 20 years. So even if you think, okay, let's go and start informatics and becoming a software engineer, for example, to reach the level to be in a fair competition with the boys after university, it's just not fair. You can't do that. It's a related analogy we can take from the sports let's say if you want to become a great tennis player you need to practice and you need to practice starting from early age so if you don't practice like there is no chance to compete and the same in programming we took this as a goal that we would like to make a change at least in Estonia here and the goal is that not only for the girls but also for the boys that at schools we change the way how technology is teached 
So currently, it's not so much about robots and drones and more hammer and, and things like that, which are still cool. I think we should do that also, but there's, it's not a 21st century technology study. Mm. And to change that, we first need to prove to the government and to the people of Estonia the girls, that girls actually want to study technology. And to do that, then yes, we started a school. We have 3,000 girls in our school. It's uh, all around Estonia, also in rural areas, uh, small villages, small towns. And because the teachers are the parents and all the like, robots and drones they need, we send them in advance. So they gave a lesson and then they sent back those boxes to us. So the lessons are ready made and, and have proper support in YouTube and you can always write also to the community lists. So yeah, it's a fun project and, and at least we know now that girls also want to study technology, but they don't want to do it in the same room with boys. So you have to remove the boys and then it works. <laughs> I love that initiative and, and I wanted to mention it in the podcast. Maybe there are people listening that can look up what you're doing with HK Unicorn Squad and perhaps we can replicate it because the truth is that this problem is not an Estonian problem. It's a world problem. There's a huge gender gap when it comes to technology, women, entrepreneurship, all these things. But we're almost nearing the end of our podcast. Otherwise, I would have asked you a lot more questions about this. I want to go into our rapid round, which is really um, just questions that I ask outside of your entrepreneurship discussions that we've had so far. And it usually starts with, what's your favorite book? What book made an impact on you that you would recommend for others to read? Yeah, it's a very good one. So many of them. Well, you can name more than one. I actually have liked literature, yeah. uh, especially like Remark and some others who basically describe you, like they give you a glance to a certain age of time. And the parallels you can make with current world are so mm. strong, even though, let's say, like Balzac, he wrote his stuff like hundreds of years ago, which means that, and this, it's still so relevant. I like operas a lot, to be honest. I like to go operas because the same thing, like the core values, who we are, how we define ourselves, like how we see the world, people around us, the greed, all the sins like we make, they're still the same. So we can have the chat. GPT and other stuff around us, but we're still humans. And that's, yes. I think, what fascinates me that, yes, like you can like always study like how to be better in sales and how to be better leader and et cetera, but it's still to understand the human nature and find the new trend from there. What about a productivity tool? Uh, I'm an old-fashioned person, so I actually marked down my notes and I still in the morning, I do my daily lists and I try to follow my daily list as much as possible. Still, I need to take extra time on weekends to finish the <laughs> task list I have yeah. compiled during the week. I have a remarkable also, so that's the hack definitely. Compared with notes or notebook, this is better. Like you can draw and share very quickly with your team what you oh, have nice. in mind. And that's it. Really okay. What about your favorite city in Europe? Hmm, good one. Definitely. I invite everybody to visit Tallinn. It's not my hometown. I don't live here, but still cool city to be. I like Amsterdam. Definitely. Lisbon is magical. For the work, I have to be in London. 
great place <laughs> to be, but I can't imagine myself living there. Uh, yeah. Okay. Zurich okay. is cool. Yeah. Rome. <laughs> wow. Lots of favorite cities. Okay. Yeah. And then the last one is a quote, like a favorite quote, something that you often say to your children or to your employees or to yourself that holds a lot of meaning for you, whether you, you came up with it or someone else doesn't matter. <laughs> now for children, it's very simple for children. The favorite quote is that we can always buy or like we can always order more instead of whenever you go to a restaurant with them, instead of just wasting food and ordering a huge amount of different stuff to the table and then not finishing it all, they always say we can order some more. And again, if you're missing something that let's say you want to choose that you didn't order, but your brother ordered, and then you grab that one. So instead of grabbing that one, like you can always order more. And that's, I think, like something they will remember me for. <laughs> okay. That's smashed into their like, head. But favorite quotes, I, to be honest, I love stories. I love stories for any kind of situation that might happen in life or at work. I want to point out any specific quote. It's more like you should have a huge variety of stories that you can reflect that. Okay, like this situation remembers me a jury a story about two Jews going to the bar. So that type yeah. of things. Like I truly this kind of approach. Okay. Thank you so much, Tavi, for being on my show. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I hope we can keep in touch and all the best for Coos. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and you will some review at the show's day live. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building.